X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, January 20th, and it is Inauguration Day. Today, today, not back in the day, the United States of America will inaugurate a new president. Joe Biden will become that president, and this will be the last time in American history the United States has never had a woman in the executive office. Kamala Harris become vice president of the United States. Today, back in the day, January 20th, 1937, a regular inaugural tradition began. Inauguration Day wasn't always in January. In 1933, states ratified the 20th Amendment and established January 20th as the beginning of each presidential term. So in 1937, FDR was the first president to be sworn in on this day. Some other fun facts. George Washington, a man of few words, delivered the shortest inaugural address, just 135 words. William Henry Harrison had the longest speech, 10,000 words in 1841. Harrison then caught pneumonia during that speech and shortly thereafter died. The arts have slowly become a bigger part of the inauguration. John F. Kennedy, the first president to invite a poet to read at his inauguration. 86-year-old Robert Frost read The Gift Outright. This year, 23-year-old poet Amanda Gorman will read at the ceremony. She'll be the youngest person in history to speak at the event. 1941 was the first popular musician to perform the inauguration, Mickey Rooney playing piano for FDR. Over the years, the list of stars has grown to Nat King Cole, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, Linda Ronstadt, and Beyonce. Fleetwood Mac reunited the Rumors Era lineup for Bill Clinton's inauguration in 1993. This year, Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, John Legend, and Bruce Springsteen will perform. Of course, COVID-19 will make this year's inauguration a little different. The whole event will be a mix of in-person and virtual activities. Typically, thousands flock to Washington, D.C. for the inauguration. This year, just 2,000 people will be in attendance. Stay back! Today, back in the day, January 20th, 1939, the Oregon Friends of Chamber Music held its first conference. The group has hosted Oregon's longest-running concert series. The event was first planned by Reed College professor Reginald Aragon and other music lovers. The group's first concert featured the Curtis String Quartet. These days, the Friends of Chamber Music hold events featuring music ranging from Bach to contemporary classical. They present concerts at Lincoln Hall on the Portland State University campus. Today, the Stop Trump House is going to get painted. Over the last little over two years, the historic Ellis Lawrence House has had the word Stop Trump emblazoned across its facade. Ellis Lawrence, the storied architect who designed the Governor's Mansion, Mahoney Hall, as well as the Irving Club, as well as most of the U of O campus, lived in the house that he built from the early 1900s until he passed away. The house is actually two units, and one of those units resides, well, me. My nephew had the idea to paint f Trump. And while I couldn't go with my nephew and the cursing, at least, you know, not in front of all the neighbors, and inspired the Stop Trump paint job. And the original painter of it, Joshua, is returning today at noon Pacific time in view of whoever wants to come by to paint over it. But in case a risk of tyranny returns, paintbrush will be ensconced in a glass case for display and future potential use. The address of the place is 2201 Northeast 21st, right by the Irving Club. Fans of the local are welcome to come by for safe snacks and celebration and to ring in the new administration. Today, we have an interview with Tom Llewellyn from shareable.net on what mutual aid networks have taught us over the past nine months. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Portland and other nearby areas have begun to reopen schools 
Remember those schools? In December, Governor Kate Brown altered the path for reopening a public school. She left it up to each individual school district to decide when to reopen for in-person learning. Many school districts around the state have already started reopening. Hillsborough began welcoming back students January 11th. Clackamas County schools have been safely doing some in-person schooling since November. Portland Public Schools announced they plan to start reopening January 25th. That's next week. They'll phase in 16 elementary schools and two high schools, starting with the youngest children first. Most other metro area school districts plan to resume in-person learning between now and the beginning of February. In an effort to speed up the reopening process, Governor Brown put school employees next in line for the vaccines. Speaking of vaccines, here's your daily dose of data. On Tuesday, Oregon Health Authority announced 637 new cases of the novel coronavirus and five new deaths. 328 people are currently hospitalized with COVID-19, which is lower than yesterday. Oregon's positivity rate is hanging out around 6%, which is lower than the national average of 10.4%. Healthcare is front and center in the 2021 legislative session that started yesterday. The Oregon legislature will focus more on healthcare this session than in any previous session, starting with pandemic protocols. Lawmakers will have a COVID-19 committee overseeing policies related to the pandemic and vaccine rollout. Most committee meetings and info sessions will be held virtually, and masks are required for voting. The state is awaiting federal money from the incoming administration that will aid in tackling COVID-19. The amount and direction of that federal money will weigh heavily into the legislative process in Oregon. Representative Andrea Salinas of Lake Oswego is drafting legislation for a public option health care plan for Oregonians while Representative Rob Nose of Portland focuses his attention on the needs of behavioral health workers. The legislature is also considering prescription drug price reforms, as well as labor issues surrounding health care workers. The Oregon Department of Justice has said that legislative staff cannot unionize. Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum filed briefs last week detailing why the legislative staff is in fact exempt from the right to unionize. Oregon law says that state and local employees have the right to unionize, but the Attorney General argues the law doesn't apply here. Rosenblum pointed out that the group of state legislative staff fluctuates too much to be unionized. She says that since the group is laid off and the legislature is not in session, as well as the fact that many of them could be categorized as supervisors or managers, makes them a special case who can't join a union. This comes after December 8th filing by the legislative staff to join IBEW Local 89. House Speaker Tina Kotek praised Rosenblum's finding on behalf of the legislature. Kotek said the objections filed were not an attempt to shut down the staff's effort to form a union, but instead were an effort to seek clarity on the matter. And the Oregon Employment Relations Board met on January 14th to review the matter. No decision has yet been made public. Clackamas County Commissioner Mark Scholl apologizes amid calls to resign. Newly seated Commissioner Mark Scholl apologized Monday for racist language he has used many times in the past. During a Muslim Educational Trust event on Monday, Scholl said he didn't mean for his past social media posts and emails to cause anyone, quote, fear and anxiety. Scholl has been asked to resign by over 100 other elected officials, including the other members of the Clackamas County Board of Commissioners, as well as many religious organizations, community groups, and media outlets. So far, he has refused to do so, saying that his prior comments have been misunderstood. In his apology, he said he accepted full responsibility for past comments and hopes to move forward. He cited his time in the military serving in Iraq as the basis for his worldview. When asked at the event about Black Lives Matter, 
Scholl responded that all lives matter, saying, quote, black lives, white lives, all lives in creation. A new bill aims to change the name of the Oregon Liquor Control Commission without changing its initials. House Bill 2111, introduced by the governor, would change the name of the OLCC to reflect the changing times. When Oregon legalized recreational marijuana in 2014, the commission that regulates alcohol was put in charge of weed. Oregon retailers are expected to sell about a billion dollars in legal pot this year as the weed industry becomes a major player in the Oregon economy. The proposed name change for the OLCC replaces the word control with the word cannabis. The same commission is responsible for regulating pot and booze. The agency's rules for both substances are different. The state is the seller of all liquor. It does not play that game with weed. Instead, they just get a 17% tax on all pot sales. The new proposed name, with that same acronym, the OLCC, is the Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission. And good news. One Salem restaurant is doing their part to educate the public about racism. Since the library is closed due to the pandemic, Epilogue Kitchen in Salem has become a major lender of anti-racist books. The restaurant is open for takeout food and literature, filling much-needed culinary and educational voids. What started as a simple idea to grow community has become a major gathering spot for Black cultural awareness. Owners Jonathan Jones and Maura Ryan decided to start a lending library last summer as racial justice protests broke out all over the country. Jones told the Statesman Journal, quote, We noticed that there was a serious lack of education about general history, local history, recent history, but also about culture specifically in Salem. We already had about half these books in our personal library just sitting at our house, so we decided we'd let it be rentable and see what happens. The experiment has been super successful. For a $15 refundable deposit, you can borrow titles such as The Invisible Man, along with your burger and fries. Jones and Ryan have been very active in the Black Lives Matter movement and have created a strong community space through their restaurant and lending library. They've proven to all of us that sharing what you have is a great way to create and maintain connection in these tough times. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have Tom Llewellyn, the Strategic Partnerships Director at Shareable.net. Tom talks with X-Ray's Kira Lindenberg on what mutual aid networks have taught us over the last nine months and how you can get involved. Here are Tom and Kira. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen mutual aid networks becoming more active with areas of existing scarcity deepening and expanding. Mutual aid is rising to the occasion to help people meet their basic needs from food to housing, medicine, and beyond. Shareable is a nonprofit that released an ebook called Lessons from the First Wave Resilience in the Age of COVID 19. We're joined now by Tom Llewellyn, the Strategic Partnerships Director at Shareable. Tom, good morning. Hey, good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Doing well. Thanks for having me on the show. I like your little studio you have happening in your house there. (laughs) Uh, It hides the chaos behind. Sure. Yes. Well, that's a metaphor for life. So Shareable (laughs) is a nonprofit for news, action, and consultancy. Uh, We're going to talk more about the book in a moment. But before we get into that, can you tell us what Shareable is and what its core mission is? Yeah. So Shareable's been around for about uh, 11 years. And we exist to promote people-powered solutions for the common good. Um, you know, it took us a while to get along to get to figure out that tagline. Yeah, it's a good tagline. It really does. It does. It does really sum up what we do. And and you know, as we as you mentioned, you know, we are a media outlet. We've um, 
been kind of covering kind of sharing initiatives and and the ways that people are building community around the world. Um, we've, we've published over 4,000 articles over this time. Um, and so most people know us kind of for that kind of media side. Um, but we do a lot on the ground, um, working with community groups to start sharing projects like tool libraries and time banks and network all the different initiatives in their communities. Um, and then also working on a policy level, both as um, an advisor to policymakers like various mayors around the world, you know, city council members, wow. and people working, um, you know, doing waste and, and sustainability in their cities, um, and then also doing advocacy, um, you know, partnering with other organizations to you know, do things like safe seed sharing, which was being wow. um, threatened back in, in 2015 um, as a result of pressure from kind of large uh, seed companies um, put were trying to uh, stop uh community seed libraries from existing in in oh. many and minnesota you know there's a number of yeah. places where there's all of a sudden that's all like, those things like are coming evil. up that's like cartoon bad guy style evil it's it's kind of ridiculous yeah. yeah it's like over the top it's like a little bit more too much of a caricature um and yet you know sometimes we have to fight these battles sure and and so we kind of operate on on that level to try to grow and and preserve sharing that's amazing so the ongoing global crisis has widened some of the cracks in our society's systems and safety nets, causing hunger, homelessness, you know, things, things we're all familiar with. These cracks were already there, right? So, so did mutual aid networks become more necessary during the pandemic, or are they just like receiving more public attention now because there's sort of this more universalized sense of unsafety in our society? Yeah, I, I'd say it's a little bit of both. I mean, um, yes, you know, whenever a disaster happens, you know, this is a pandemic is a, is a great example of this. But, you know, whenever a disaster happens, what it does is it just kind of um, pulls the veil off of the systemic issues that we're already facing our communities. Yeah. And it kind of tends to exacerbate the inequalities, you know, and, and we see people that are, are doing well are able to get, you know, be able to be online and, and have all the technology they need or hire private tutors, you know, all that sort of thing. And then, you know, other people that, that don't have those resources, you know, their children are falling behind, you know, right. just one example. But um, but this is, is happening on the ground. And so, you know, when we think about the mutual aid initiatives, yeah, there was so much mutual aid work that was already happening, um, you know, around the globe before the pandemic. But what's what's happened since then is that it's become normalized in a new way you know while it was often kind of looked at more of like a radical act mm. you know where um, you know people working around the edges it's really come towards the center yeah and you know one of the things that you know we put in the book but um you know it's, it's kind of really funny is that it's become so mainstream that you know cnn is writing about it like yeah. teen vogue which you know teen vogue is publishing some amazing they have, stuff they have like they're, stepped up like to the they're plate. on fire right. over Teen Vogue. <laughs> um, but you know places where you wouldn't necessarily think this conversation would be happening around mutual aid and need um, is now happening yeah. and one of the things that I'm really hopeful for is that that normalization um, will make it so once we get past this pandemic you know this this will continue that people will yeah. you know recognize the needs in their communities and try to do something about it and and not from a, a charitable perspective um you know whereas you know looking at it as okay well these these people over there need help you know i'm right. doing fine and, and you know but these people need help and you know um but really seeing it as hey these are people in my community like this is this like i, I like you know the, like i i i will not be comfortable unless 
everybody in my community is more comfortable. Right, um, right. Seeing so us more, so seeing ourselves more as a community rather than, you know, the haves and the haves not. And we're like, oh, well, these people need our help because they, you know, have somehow failed at life. And, uh, you know, yeah. I, I appreciate that of taking the stance. And, and maybe that's one good thing to come out of uh, the last four years of political turmoil and this pandemic <laughs> is is that we are seeing ourselves more as a community who needs to rely on each other. And, and that's where our systems should be rather than, you know, hoping that like the, the couple of government officials are going to save us. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, it is this very tricky balance where you don't want to let, you know, let those, those political leaders off the hook, mm, yeah, you, know, good like point. We, you know, and, and so a lot of, of mutual aid is political. Yeah. It is saying, Hey, you know, this is, this is not the end all be all like, you know, we don't, we don't want to have to be out here. We're out here because there's a necessity, but that doesn't mean that, that, you know, that we will keep coming out and that there's, we're not going to do anything else to change the system as a whole. Right. You know, this is, this is a direct action as a result of a direct need. You know, the bull, the bulldozer is at our door. Right. You know? right. So we right. got to lay down in front of it because the bulldozer is at our door, but we can't lay down in front of this bulldozer every single day. We're going to sure. have to get up and eat something at some point in time. Right. Yeah. We can be locked down for a little while, <laughs> we get rid of but the bulldozer, you know, at a certain point in time, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and so that's really what mutual aid often is. It, it sometimes really is. It's a last resort. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so, you know, we do kind of have to look at it through a larger political lens. You that's, know, what, what is the changes? It must be a really interesting position to be in to say, like, you know, our goal is to to eventually not be necessary. Our, go- our goal is to make ourselves not necessary because the community will be so self-sufficient and so reliant on each other that we can step yep. back. Um well, and, you know, when we think about, I was going to say just like with, with any kind of like sharing economy platform or all these different things, you know, for me, like it's it's always been how do we shift culture? Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. once that cultural shift takes place, the platforms, the technology, whatever it is that's enabling that thing to start becomes less necessary. Sure. Um, you know, we think about this like with time banks. And one of the, the the failings of time banks, you know, failings of time banks is that it's really hard to actually track all the work that, that people do. And, and, and just for those that, that aren't familiar with time banks, uh, it's it's basically a, a system where um, people put forward all their skills they're willing to share and then into, a, you know, an online database. And then you're able to find people that have those skills. And, and then you trade, you know, if you need someone to walk your dog or give you a massage, or do some plumbing work, you know, that sort of thing. I did not know say, this hey, exists. I need to take I need notes, I think. <laughs> yep. And. Um, and so then somebody comes to do some plumbing for you and it goes, you basically pay them an hour into their bank and, and they receive an hour in their bank and it's all horizontal. You know, it's, huh. it's one hour for one hour. Yeah. It's all even. That's amazing. Someone can be a doctor and someone can be a dog walker and it's the same thing. Um, and so it's, it's actually the only uh, non-taxable exchange hmm. within our system. Yeah. You know, so, so you can't barter, you can't trade goods without actually, um, uh, extracting tax yeah. and paying tax. There's a lot of barter networks that have been shut down over the years. Um, but a time bank, you can you can trade an hour for an hour. It's completely even and it's totally untaxable. Um, and so there's there's time banks all the place, you know, all, all over the world. Um, but one of the the things that that is I was what I was t- referring to a moment ago. That's kind of the the failing of the time bank is that once people start making those exchanges with each other and starting to meet other people in their in their in their neighborhoods and their communities and having their needs met. Um, then they oftentimes forget to log those hours in the system. Mm. And so it appears that, you know, nobody's using this system or the system's not being effective in some way. Um, but in reality, oftentimes that that leads to a cultural shift. 
And once that cultural shift takes place, once people are reaching out to their neighbors or are getting their needs met, um, then that platform is not necessary in the same way. Right. Um, and so, you know, in a similar way, we're looking at mutual aid as a whole, all these different networks which have now come up and, and you know, there's just there is millions of people that are coming out and, and working with their neighbors and, and you know, on very, very, very small levels sometimes, you know, just going door to say, hey, do you need some food? You know, right. Do you need a ride somewhere? You know, like, hey, you know, I've got some extra masks. Like I've seen you haven't had one. Maybe you're not an anti-masker. Maybe you just don't have the right. <laughs> access to those masks. You know, I, you know, personally, I've taken to carrying a bunch of masks in my, in my, in my car. And when I, you know, I end up on a street corner, you know, oftentimes people are out there, you know, in, in the intersection asking for some support. Yeah, I got a granola bar. I got a couple of bucks. I'll give it to them. But I got masks that I'm handing out to people in the street. I'm like, That's hey, great. People are going to be much more likely to give you a dollar when you're standing on the street. If you're wearing a mask sure. right now, they're not going to roll down their window for you right. if you don't have it. So here, this, this right. mask actually might be worth a lot more to you than a dollar. Right. And that's, um, that's a really interesting mindset. To, you know, I, I appreciate the idea of walking through your community. And, and, and that is something else that this pandemic has brought to us uh, is, is the mindset that we we can do some good. We, each piece of the community, you know, we, we do bring something to the table because when we can't rely up, clearly we can't rely on our government at the moment, you know, it is up to us to make sure that our neighbors have uh, masks, that our neighbors have groceries, that everyone's being taken care of. Um, Tom, from Shareable. We had just have a few minutes left, so I want to talk about this book that your organization has put out, Lessons from the First Wave. Um, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, I mean, so as I mentioned, we've been covering sharing for a really long time and um, and really actually looking in the last three years have been looking at uh, kind of the ways the communities come together during disasters. Um, you know, and, and especially looking at climate fuel disasters, but, you know, other ones as well, economic disasters. And so, uh, you know, early on in the pandemic, we kind of pivoted a lot of our, our coverage at, at Shareable to focus on the ways that communities were showing up for mm. each other. Um, and, you know, over the last year, I think, you know, we've done about 50 different stories about it. Um, you know, and these things have, have kind of ranged from, uh, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, a little bit around alternative school solutions for working parents um, to the ways that people People have found housing through tiny house villages and other things, you know, during this time, um, you know, the way that uh, bike delivery cooperatives are coming up. And yeah, they have been. Moment, and, and, and you were talking earlier about Google and, and working on the, you know, Google unions coming together. And, you know, a lot of these larger uh, delivery platforms and, and ride shares and everything like that um, don't are also not unionized. And so, um people that are working on those platforms are starting to either create alternatives themselves mm. or also working from within similar to a, to a Google. Um, and so there is, especially in this moment where everything is being delivered, um, you know, and, and we're thinking a lot more, more about those frontline workers, uh, you know, who, who has a better idea about what's necessary than those that are on the front lines themselves. Right. And so, you know, like, so you know, bike, bike delivery is just one example of that. Um, you know, another great, a great thing that we've been tracking for years, but has really kind of started to step up in the last, in, during the pandemic is public libraries. You know, oh, public libraries huge ever, you know, are just like, you know, they, they are a huge resource. They, one of the most amazing things about libraries is how across the board, people of, of all economic levels, right? you know, of all, you know, genders and races and everything, like, like the, the, 
they are one of our most core community centers that are everywhere around the country. They are community you know, like, centers. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, my, my roommate was actually just telling me the other day that she applied to work at the, the Multnomah County Library System. And they said, well, if you don't have any background in, uh, you know, mental health uh uh, working with people with mental health or, or you know that that kind of like therapy um th- those are the kind of people that they hire because our our libraries really have become the most accessible community centers and that's you yep. know hats off to them i mean that's that's such an important uh lifeline for our community yeah and now you know with the pandemic you know th- these resources where people were going spending their days having access to the internet like being able to you know have a place inside when it's cold you know their warming centers you know all these things all of a sudden they couldn't accept people to come inside the right. libraries anymore you know and and so in addition to just saying okay well we're going to do online checkouts for books and you know have have a ways to pick you know curbside pickup and all that stuff which is great and and necessary unto itself libraries have also been distributing an insane amount of food mm. it, you know they they become these these really important mutual aid distribution centers um and our and libraries are continuing to reinvent themselves um and so that's you know something else that we also really cover in the book but you know some of one of the the kind of the core offerings is is really looking you know how if for groups, for people that are, are interested in, in getting more involved, that are either interested in scaling up their existing uh, mutual aid work in their community or just starting f- from scratch, we've created a couple of different um, kind of extensive how-to guides that we include in the book. Oh, great. Um, about how to start a mutual aid network. And then we worked with um, this really amazing organizer, Julia, Julia Ho in St. Louis, who's been doing mutual aid work for years and years and years, you know, working on the solidarity economy for a long time. Um, and uh, her and her team created a um a mutual aid fund to just distribute money to people that you know necessarily not just goods but you know people need to pay their rent people need to be able Absolutely. to pay those bills and um you know have created this this great system and distributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to people in their in their community and we worked with them to kind of pull all that knowledge from doing it over the over the first six months of the pandemic and put it into a guide for communities that are that are interested in kind of going into that next level that's amazing it sounds extremely comprehensive and so how do people yeah. find this ebook lessons from the first wave yeah, so you just write on at shareable.net is the, the website, okay. um, www.shareable.net. And we've got it as one of the featured posts right now. Um, but it's called, yeah, Lessons um, the lessons from the First Wave, Re- Resilience in the Age of COVID-19. Um, and for those that are interested in kind of uh, continuing to, to think about, you know, we're talking about climate before we came into the mm. se- se- segment, you know, as being one of these big challenges. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, we've been, we've been, um, kind of covering the ways that communities come together during disasters. We've got a project called The Response. Oh, okay. Uh, which is, you know, so far it's like we've got, a, uh, we do a documentary podcast series. Um, we've got another book and, and also a film about Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria um, and looking at all the mutual aid hubs that came up, um, you know, following the, 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 the hurricane and, and also kind of how they're continuing to serve their communities. Um, but for, for folks that want to kind of go a little bit deeper and, and think about how, um, one, we can start to deal with disasters more on the community level moving forward. Um, and two, just to kind of reduce some of the fear around disasters. Yeah. You know, we're going to have a lot more yeah. of these climate disasters, unfortunately. Absolutely. And we've got to figure out how we work with each other in these these peak stressful moments. 
And so we've been we've been documenting that all around the world. That's amazing. Um, just kind of the ways that people are doing that. So you could people can find the responsible podcast, That's, you know, wherever they listen to their podcasts as well. You make a good point, which is that, you know, anxiety has kind of become our, our norm. And maybe it's a good thing because <laughs> we're going to have to deal with a lot of, of disasters going forward. That's just kind of the world we live in. Well, Tom Llewellyn, I think we're going to have to have you back at some point because I really <laughs> want to talk more about this time banks thing. I think that that's yeah. uh, really important. <laughs> seriously, I think it's an extremely important uh, uh, thing to talk about. And I think somewhere like Portland is, is um, we're, we're the exact right community for that. Um, Tom Llewellyn, Strategic Partnerships Director at Shareable. Thank you so much for joining us. Again, shareable.net is where people can find more information. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we're on all the social channels and everything as well. Search for Shareable. Thank you so much yep. for being here, Tom. And I'm sure we'll speak with you again. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks to Tom for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, giving a five-star review, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.